Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Today, I am very happy to welcome to our podcast, Stephanie Gray Connors. Stephanie is a well-known pro-life advocate who maintains the organization and the webpage, Love Unleashes Life. Over the years, she has written and lectured extensively against abortion and has often debated those who identify as pro-choice. Recently, however, Stephanie has turned her focus in a different direction. She is the author of the new book, Start With What? 10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. In part one of this interview, Stephanie introduces herself to our audience and offers an overview of her work in the pro-life movement. We then begin our discussion of her new book. Stephanie Gray Connors, welcome to our Bioethics On Air podcast. Thank you so much, Joe. I'm glad to be on your program. Well, we're honored to have you as well, too. So I, I have to tell you, as we get going, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were putting this podcast together, my daughter told me, she said, you know, Dad, uh, Stephanie Gray, by the way, um, you're known to her as Stephanie Gray, not Stephanie Gray Connors. So mm-hmm. probably a lot of people that way, too. But she said, you know, Stephanie Gray is really well known to you know, millennials and, and younger people and stuff, but I'm not sure too many people in your Bioethics on Air podcast would know who she is. So I take that advice. Maybe people do, maybe people don't. But um, I was wondering if you tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically education, work experience that led you to be with us today. Sure. Yes. So background wise, I grew up in a very devout Catholic family in which both my parents were active in the pro-life movement. So that set a really solid foundation for living out my faith and proclaiming that faith specifically in defense of the most vulnerable. And then uh, after growing up in that great family, I went off to university. I'm originally from Canada, although I'm in the States now. So I'm from Vancouver on the Mm -hmm. West Coast. And I went to the University of British Columbia, where I did a degree in political science. And then I started a pro-life nonprofit that I ran for just over a decade before moving over to Love Unleashes Life in the last few years. And it was through that that I really worked on pro-life apologetics and training others to be really winsome and gracious and persuasive when articulating the pro-life message. And as you mentioned, a good chunk of my career was focused on the beginning of life, and now I've expanded to uh, the end of life. And, And also part of my formation in helping me better teach others how to articulate the pro-life message as I was honored to, um, I think, be some of the first students in the NCBC program, the Certification in Healthcare Ethics. I did it back in 08-09. So I think that was near the beginning. um, And it was a great program. So that was kind of after about 10 years, or not even, maybe six or so years after my university degree, I, I did that. And that was a great help to me in my formation of others. Yeah. I believe that the certification program started in 2005. So you would have been one of the first groups, Yeah, that's I right. guess, to go through. And I also am really interested in the fact that um, that you are a Canadian because it brings or it may bring uh, a perspective in terms of pro-life issues in Canada versus pro-life issues in the US. And, and maybe we'll talk about that uh, a little bit as we, as we move forward. Great. So Stephanie, what is Love Unleashes Life? You mentioned it before, but what is what is that organization and, and what do you seek to accomplish through it? Sure. So 
Love Unleashed's Life is really my educational platform, which is speaking and writing in really helping form the culture in reaching not only the mind and the intellect of people, but also the heart and the emotion to make as holistic a message as possible when explaining why we ought to embrace the pro-life message. And in particular, what I wanted to do was influence the influencers and really focus not entirely, but a good portion of my speaking um, on people of great influence. So future doctors, future lawyers, or physicians or lawyers, um, people in the political sphere. And what I had done, you know, I, I started giving talks when I was 18. I'm now 40. And so it was in the last five or so years that I started Love Unleashes Life. And I'd for over a decade been speaking to so many people of influence. And sometimes people would say to me, oh, well, I remember once I gave a, a talk in the States and this American woman said, you need to speak to our judges. And I said, well, <laughs> every year I train a group of top law students through a program run by Alliance Defending Freedom oh, and the yes. program called Blackstone Legal Fellowship. Yep, so I said, I don't think I'll ever get in front of U.S. judges, but what I am doing is training lawyers who one day may become judges or will be in front of those judges. And so if I can form that group, then they can form the other group. And so that's that's what I really, it's one of my passions is to speak to, you know, med students, law students and so forth. But, but certainly I've just spoken to general audiences, general college audiences, general high school audiences, conferences and so forth. Yeah. I, I remember looking through your website in preparation for this interview and, and just seeing the listing of presentations and it just goes on page after page after page after page after page. So you've got a, a lot of great experience and, and I've heard you on, on, different interviews and podcasts and, and debates and everything else. So yeah, a, a great, a great person to have um, working in the pro-life movement. So, so if nothing else, thank you for all your work. Uh, oh, well, you're area. welcome. And, and really what, what I've learned is it's being receptive to the call of God. You know, when I was 18, uh, an American speaker actually came to Canada and I was at a conference for college students. His name is Scott Klusendorf. And at that conference, he trained us in pro-life apologetics and he said, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. And I remember when I heard those words, I thought, oh my goodness, like, I believe I need to work full-time in the pro-life movement. And this man has really inspired me to do that. And so he began to mentor me as I finished my college degree. And God just open doors. As I would say, you know, yes, and take a step forward in one direction, God opened another door and another door. So um, it's, yeah, it's something where God gives us talents, but then he also gives us opportunities and we need to seize them as they are presented to us. Absolutely. So today, what is a typical day look like for you? Well, you know, that's a good question. I guess we could qualify it. Is it pre-COVID or during COVID? <laughs> you know, my life is very different. Either or. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly I traveled pre-COVID. I traveled a lot um, around the world and both in Canada and the U.S. primarily, but in other countries as well. And so often speaking at conferences and I'm still doing a lot of speaking, but during COVID, my days very much involve uh, a lot of writing and then speaking online. So... And in terms of the speaking, I would say 
I do somewhere I'm doing pre-recorded presentations and you're submitting them to events that will happen. But a lot of times I'm doing things where there's a back and forth dialogue like you and I are having, mm-hmm. or I'm on a radio show, uh, or even this afternoon, actually, I'm virtually in a high school classroom and then students will just be bombarding me with their toughest <laughs> questions and and I'll be answering those. So I love teaching and explaining things to others. So a good portion of kind of, I I would say maybe a work week, it's not always every day I'm speaking, but in a week, you know, it involves that. And then a lot of writing this, as you mentioned, I have my second book now on assisted suicide, I have plans to write a book on in vitro fertilization. And all of my books kind of follow a similar pattern of articulating the pro-life message, reaching the head and the heart, using questions and using stories. Um, And so I'm going to, you know, be doing more writing as, as time goes on. And then I do consults, various pro-life leaders around the world, because I've interacted with so many groups will often consult me on whether it's leadership issues, organizational management, fundraising for their ministry. And, and so I'll help in that way as well. Wow. So you're really bored. <laughs> well, yeah. And then throw into the mix that right now I'm pregnant with a lot of pregnancy sickness. I don't know why it's called morning <laughs> sickness because it can strike at any time of day. <laughs> So that makes it very interesting too. <laughs> oh, yes, I can imagine. So we are, just so people know, we're recording this on January 25th of 2021. <laughs> and how, how far along are you in your pregnancy? So I've just tipped over 12 weeks. So I'm at that, what everyone tells me is going to bring me into the second trimester glow where everything <laughs> feels better. So I'm counting on that. <laughs> well, I hope so. I, I from, well, from, my own wife's experience, or, or watching my own wife's experience, or the first trimester was, um, it was not great. But getting into the second trimester, things did get better. So hopefully, hopefully things will as well for you. So yeah. anyway, good luck and congratulations. Thank you. Well. <laughs> Thank you. So you, you you started talking about this a little bit in a previous question, but I was wondering how does your faith influence your work? Mm. So my my faith is pivotal to my work. It's it's the foundation from which all my activity springs. I mean, if we're to talk about also what does a typical day look like for me, it involves a rigorous prayer life in which I really focus on surrendering to God and ask him to use me as his instrument. And I believe it's possible to convince someone that, for example, abortion is wrong, even if that person isn't religious. I'll often make non-sectarian arguments coming from a human rights perspective, using science and philosophy. Um, But there's no denying that what motivates me, what inspires me, and what grounds me is my faith in Jesus Christ and and his church. And so that is also essential, I think, in making me persuasive when interacting with others, because I focus on running on the Holy Spirit, not myself, so that if I'm having an interaction or giving a presentation or doing a debate, you know, and I hear something from someone and I think, oh gosh, what would be the best reply? There's so many directions you can go in when someone asks you a question or makes a comment. And so it's in those moments where I'll silently pray, like, Lord, that I may see what I should say to this person or come Holy Spirit. And there have been moments where I have said things that seem to profoundly impact people in a positive way that I believe is the fruit of prayer. And had I not called on God for his involvement in that answer, it wouldn't have been as effective. Yeah. No, I I hear what you're saying. In fact, one of the things that I really um, 
envy about you, because I've, I've heard you speak in a number of different forums, is the fact that you are very quick on your feet and, and, be, and able to respond to people who throw challenges at you. I don't have the ability to do that. Now, I know you're saying it's the Holy Spirit, and, and I absolutely, but it's, there's, there's that gift that you have as well, too, which I know that I don't have. You know, When someone asks me a difficult question, I, I have to kind of stop, think about it, and it may take a while um, to come back with a, you know, hopefully a good response. But I love the way that you are able to, you know, someone throws you a curveball and you're able to, you're able to hit it. Right, and, it, and um, it, it's it, it's it's a gift, and um, I think that's that's probably one of the reasons why you you've been as as successful as you as you have been. Mm. Certainly, we all are given different gifts, and I think, as you say, for my role in the pro life movement, to be able to really teach and articulate in a also a time crunch, where especially in a debate context, you only have a limited amount of time. That having the gift of being able to think quickly is certainly very important. But there have been times when I've been debating people informally rather than formally. And so it's more conversational. Maybe it's a student on a college campus. And I've actually had to rein in my quick thinking because I'm afraid that if I, I respond too quickly, that I'll, I'll just lose them. And they'll be like, you're just being harsh or whatever. So sometimes I have to rein myself in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So I, I want to give you a chance, at least briefly, because so much of your life has been um, pro-life work in terms of responding to abortion. So you're best known, obviously, for your work opposing abortion. I was wondering if you could briefly speak to this, some mm. of the work that you've done. Sure. So one of the things that I appreciated from that mentor, Scott Klusendorf, when I heard him when I was 18, was he really emphasized the importance of looking at the science of when life begins mm -hmm. and making a good philosophical case for the personhood of what we know to be a human being based on science. Because the question of personhood is not a scientific issue. That's a philosophical issue. And it's often confused right. in our culture where Correct. people will say, well, the embryo isn't a person. And so I usually start with, well, is the embryo a human? Are they of the species homo sapiens? Um, if they're of that species, which reproduces sexually, can we reasonably conclude their life begins at fertilization, which sexual beings tend to do? You know, um, So Scott really emphasized the importance of that, which I then very much infused into my pro-life teaching and education over the years. And as I focused on the science and philosophy, I found as years went on, especially when I interacted with college students through various pro-life exhibits on campuses, is students would share with me just the suffering that they were living through or that was part of their past, you know, stories of sexual abuse, stories of being raised in great poverty. And what I was discovering was the personal experience of the person I was speaking with was influencing their ability to receive what I was saying because it wasn't just intellectual for them. There was an emotional tie. And so I started to incorporate, not, not to abandon any of the, the logic, the science and philosophy, but to incorporate more of the heart and more story into that to make the message uh, more full. And one of the things that I found very helpful over the years was something I read in a book called Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. And the author of the book has you imagine having three buckets of water in front of you, you know, one with cold water, one with lukewarm water, and one with hot water. And he says, imagine putting your left hand in the cold water and your right hand in the hot water. 
And then imagine taking them both out at the same time and putting them in the middle bucket. And then he said, you know, the hand which comes from the cold water is going to think the new bucket of water is hot. Whereas the hand which came from the hot bucket of water is going to think the new bucket of water is cold. Now, interestingly, they're both wrong. Objectively, it's lukewarm. But the previous experience is coloring the present interpretation. And when I read that, I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, that explains so many encounters I've had where for 30 or 40 minutes, I'll be going back and forth, making reasonable arguments that generally have been shown to be compelling in other contexts. And I don't seem to be getting across to this person, but when I'll ask them a question like, I'm curious, where does your passion come from? Or when did you first learn about abortion? What did you think then? And what do you think now? And it sounds like there's been a change. When did that change happen and why? Those types of questions then really draw out of that other party what their story is and where they're coming from. And I began to see, oh, that explains why they've been closed this whole time, because they drove their friend to an abortion clinic three years ago, or because their mom had an abortion or what, whatever the story is. So over the years, as I've trained people, I've, I've tried to train them in a more full strategy when interacting with others to reach the mind as well as the heart. Wow. Huh. Very well stated. As you were, as you were speaking, I was thinking back to some experiences I had when I was teaching on the college level a few years ago, and I, I taught a, a, a sexual ethics course, and we would talk about you know any number of different things, number of topics. And the thing that really got me was, as you said, it, it's the personal connection that people will make. I used to always tell students, it you know they had a paper to write at the end of the semester, and I said, I'm not looking for confessions. I'm not you know I don't want to know anything, but people would, particularly women, would internalize the class material, but they would internalize it and they would write about it in the context of their own lives. Wow. And it was just amazing to me, um, just the experiences that people have had and and they go, wow, you know, this, this teaching actually really makes sense. And when you see it in the context of what they've experienced and, and how they've experienced the the evil or and they've experienced the negative consequences. So yeah, making that personal connection is in, incredibly important. I, I'd like to I'd like to go back to um the fact that you that you're Canadian by birth and ask you in terms of your pro-life work, what are the similarities, what are the differences between this work in the US and in Canada? Hmm. You know, in terms of similarities, I would say the arguments are essentially the same. You know, whether I'm debating people north of the 49th parallel or south, I hear the same type of stuff. Um, And so that's not really different. I would say what is different is the climate for having debate or conversation. And that is Americans, and I, I think it has to do even with your history, but you are more open to debate and expressing opposing viewpoints. Although I see increasingly as time goes on, there's there's more and more efforts even down here to try to censor unpopular opinion. But there's a general sense amongst Americans of supporting free speech and expressing opposing ideas. Whereas unfortunately, in Canada, that is often not tolerated. And there's a lot of censorship that goes on in Canada. And over the years, especially on my work on college campuses, 
we, myself and former colleagues and students we worked with, had to really first fight for our right to free speech in order to fight for the preborn child's right to live, that (laughs) we couldn't express ourselves if there was no free speech. And so it was almost a twofold fight in Canada, whereas there just, in my experience, has been more freedom down here to just dive into the abortion debate and, and have to focus less on a free speech debate. Although I think that's changing here in the U.S., very sadly, it is. Yeah. So you look what's going on with social media and all that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I got off social media a few years ago, but you you see that unpopular opinions are so offensive to some people that they just want to suppress it rather than express their alternative viewpoint, which shows they can't be that confident in the strength of their alternative viewpoint. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's get to the 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 top. Man, we could have a podcast just on that issue. We could. Yeah. Probably talk about that for hours, but anyway. But let's let let's get to the uh, to the main topic of our interview today. So you recently published the book. Start with what? Ten principles for thinking about assisted suicide. So first of all, Stephanie, where's the book available? So people can go to my website, which is loveunleasheslife.com and just click on books. And from there, you'll see the link to Amazon. So it's available in all the Amazon marketplaces around the world, Canada, US, the UK, you name it. So just go to loveunleasheslife.com and the click books and the link will be there. All right. And I'm going to, if, if my technical skills allow me to do it, I'm going to put a link to uh, Love Unleashes Life in the notes, the show notes for this podcast. So people Great. can just click on that if they can do it. So Stephanie, why is, so we're, we're, you're, you're changing gears here. So you're, the, the focus of your work to this point in, in your life has been almost exclusively abortion, but now you're shifting to assisted suicide euthanasia. Why is assisted, why is assisted suicide and euthanasia a pro-life issue? Well, because once again, it involves attacking the most vulnerable who are often like the preborn child in a position of weakness where they need others to defend them, protect them and help them. And when we embrace assisted suicide, we don't do that. And so there's a great responsibility for we who have a voice to really raise them for those who are in positions of great need. And when you're sick, when you're disabled, when you're suffering, uh, all of that can skew even your perspective in the moment. If you're in in a, a period of great pain, you might say, I want to die, which is your way of expressing how much anguish and suffering you're enduring. But you don't really mean to be taken seriously because two days later, with proper pain meds and a friendly visit from a loved one, you might be feeling much better. And the problem with the legalization of assisted suicide in euthanasia is it often doesn't wait for that two day later experience to happen. It takes seriously an expression of I want to die and opens a whole pathway that can lead to the intentional killing of a very vulnerable person. Yeah. I I was wondering one of the things that I've I've run across in terms of pro-life work, and, and I'm not anywhere as closely involved with it as you are, but I mean, I, I've worked with certain groups here in the Philadelphia area, and I've always told them, I said, you know, I am 100% against abortion, absolutely, but there are other issues that are pro-life issues as well. And I specifically will say assisted suicide, euthanasia, but particularly assisted suicide as that is moving its way across the United States. And oftentimes, I'd say more often than not, 
the response I get from people who are involved in the pro-life movement is, yes, okay, yeah, that, that, that's, that's an important thing, but it, it just stops there. It almost seems as if there's kind of a, a disconnect that you know, pro-life issues could encompass anything more than abortion. And I'm just wondering, have you experienced that or run across that in your work? You know, good question. I haven't seen it as much when assisted suicide is raised. And it could be that especially in Canada, where I was, you know, for the last few years until coming to the U.S., um, assisted suicide became legal across the country. And so it was just seen as so relevant and pressing that there was this natural connection for pro-life activists to see, oh my goodness, we we created, you know, for, for decades, a generation that was taught to believe if someone, if another human gets in the way of you, it's okay to end their life, which is essentially what abortion is. It's what parents did to their children. Well, the children that weren't aborted, uh, but were probably siblings of aborted children, they've grown up and they've grown up with that philosophy of if a human gets in your way, it's okay to end their life. And so now that they're getting older, their parents are even older. And so they've thought to themselves, okay, you're kind of in my way. Maybe assisted suicide is is the answer. So it, it seems like where it's becoming legal, that there's more of an acknowledgement that there's a connection. I think perhaps though, in the pro-life movement, there's some resistance to adding on other issues because of the, the whole kind of seamless garment debate where some people coming from a, maybe a broader social justice uh, perspective will say, well, it's not just about abortion. It's about poverty. It's about immigration. It's about the death penalty. And then those who have been fighting abortion rightly get concerned saying, well, if we add in all these other issues, no longer A, does abortion seem that relevant, but B, there's generally societal acceptance for um, perspectives that would suggest we not have the death penalty or that we help immigrants or, you know, um, in these, these other areas, but there isn't societal acceptance when it comes to abortion. So when you put abortion in with those other issues, it's like the general public holds one view on those other issues, but they don't embrace a pro-life perspective on abortion. And so I would say assisted suicide reasonably can be connected with abortion without distilling the, you know, the importance of abortion, uh, because there is not uh, societal acceptance for the pro-life perspective on assisted suicide, just like there isn't societal acceptance for the pro-life perspective on, on abortion. And because the two involve directly and intentionally ending the life of very vulnerable people, there is a greater connectivity, I would say, between those two ends of life. Hmm. Very well stated. Hmm. So, Stephanie, as a Canadian, would it be fair to conclude that one of the reasons, or maybe even the primary reason, you wrote the book on assisted suicide is or is in response to what's happened in Canada in recent years regarding euthanasia and assisted suicide? Would that be a reasonable conclusion? I would say that certainly was the stimulus for it because it was – I actually had started kind of my Love Unleashes life ministry back in the end of 2014, and I believe it was 2015, early 2015, when they started the process to legalize assisted suicide in Canada. And so I saw a need to really educate people on that issue and teach people how to be winsome and persuasive and articulate and how to also 
appeal to a religious audience as well as a non-religious audience. If you're a doctor in a hospital and your colleagues aren't religious, but you want to convince them that they ought not support a law embracing assisted suicide, how do you do that? And so I thought, well, my specialty has on one sense been abortion, but more generally it's been just how to argue well. So I thought, okay, maybe I have something to contribute in this climate. And then as time went on, it just became abundantly clear that Although the problem of assisted suicide had expanded to Canada, because of course for years it had been in the Netherlands and Belgium and Switzerland and so forth, um, but it was already in the United States, right? Washington and Oregon had had legalized it to some degree, and then there were other U.S. states that were making efforts to legalize it, and then other countries. I think there's been efforts in New Zealand, and um, there's a, a bill. I think right now in Ireland, some friends of mine have have said so. So it became abundantly clear that what started as a response to what was happening in my own backyard was tragically relevant, really, in in the world. Oh yeah, absolutely. And can you, I'm just stunned as to how quickly the euthanasia assisted suicide movement took hold in Canada and just, I mean, just raced from what almost seems to be ground zero to, I mean, you can't even question it in the country today. How did, how did that happen? Yeah, that's a good question. It's really so alarming because not only was it initially legalized a few years ago, but there's a bill right now before the Canadian government that would very much broaden the existing law, which was the concern of pro-lifers at the very beginning. This will be the classic slippery slope, which people claim is a fallacy. However, time and again, you look at the countries where euthanasian-assisted suicide became legal, it really did get expanded and expanded to kind of open season on the elderly or the disabled and so forth. So yeah. So I, I would say it's several things. I mean, part of it, I think, is the fruit of a culture which has increasingly rejected God. And so there isn't this authority of a higher power who is all good, who's loving and who's our creator that we ought to be in submission to. There's a total rejection of that where we get to make up our own rules. And so that contributed to this environment. And then, as I mentioned previously, when talking about abortion, the uh, increasing environment of censorship where unpopular viewpoints are suppressed and rejected rather than heartily debated, that then contributed to this climate where you say this, and if you would disagree, well, we're not even going to let you speak. And then that whatever is proclaimed as normal becomes the widely accepted position. And then you have the media, you know, generally speaking, the broad secular media that comes from a perspective that does not embrace the pro-life view. And so they're continually bombarding the culture with an anti-life message. And I think those three factors together snowballed to what we have today. Again, I, I asked this question previously, but is the situation as you described it in Canada, how is that similar to, how is that different from what's going on here in, in, in the United States, particularly in the move to legalize assisted suicide? Yeah. So I think, again, it's it's like it's a problem down here and it can't be minimized because even right now there's a... Here's the Canadian and me coming out. I don't know if you call them bills, but there's something in the government in the state of Arizona right now that's trying to legalize assisted suicide. Now, generally, a state as conservative as Arizona, that's not likely to pass. But the point is, it's already there. The, the initiative is happening. The efforts are being made. So I think in 
what's similar is that in places that we would traditionally hope would have been pro-life, there are movements and pressures to try to embrace assisted suicide. So that's what's similar. The difference is, again, because I think Americans have more of a respect for free speech, but as we've said, that is starting to change, and also more of an openness to speak of God, but again, that's starting to change. That's starting to change, that, yeah. Yeah, in, in, in very alarming ways, but because at least there's more of that in comparison to Canada, then there's at least more hope. The other thing I have in, in terms of hope for this country, the United States, is there are a lot of great organizations that believe in religious freedom and pro-family, pro-life causes. And so I think of the group that I've spoken for, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Beckett Fund, uh, there's others. Uh, these organizations are pivotal in protecting freedom and life in this country. And they are just far more established here than in other countries in the world. Yeah. I'd add the Thomas More Society to that as yes, well. Yes, that's, right. that's right. We've had some really good dealings with them as well. So, yeah. All right. So let's get back to the book. So why do you use storytelling as the primary format of the book? Hmm. Well, in one sense, I use it because Jesus used it. And that's one of the points <laughs> I make in, in my- That's a pretty good model. I mean, you know- you, is I look at I look at good teachers that captivate people and engage them and cause them to pause and really listen. And any good educator does that when they're teaching their students. But certainly Jesus did that. He was always speaking in parables and involving settings and characters and environments that the listeners could relate to and understand. I think of the famous, you know, parable of the Good Samaritan when Jesus is asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as the conversation pursues, he's asked, who is my neighbor? He could have just said, your neighbor is any fellow man who is in need. <laughs> and right. probably, you know, That's probably thought, what I would have done in the classroom. I just would have said something, <laughs> something generic like that. Right. But instead of just stating the fact, he activates and engages the imagination. And he says... Well, imagine there's a man walking down the road to Jericho and everyone listening knew that that was a dangerous road. I remember once in one of the last speeches Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave, he spoke of the road to Jericho and he said that in the time of Jesus, it was known as the bloody pass, that it was a winding, meandering road. It was very conducive to ambushing. So when Jesus speaks of a man walking down the road, coming under attack and being left, you know, half dead, everyone listening could relate to that and, and envision that that was a possibility. And then everyone listening knew who priests were and they knew who Levites were. And so when he talks about the priest and the Levite just passing by on the other side, they could easily grasp that happening. They knew the religious laws of the day about not touching a dead body before performing ceremonies and so forth. And then they all knew who Samaritans were. And so it's in that story and in that context that's familiar that Jesus then inserts the principle of what love of God and love of neighbor looks like. And so I found over the years, as I started to apply that on the beginning of life, the more I told stories, some would be parables like Jesus. They were literally made up to illustrate a point, but other times they were real. They involved the lived experience of, you know, I have a friend who was raped at 12 and became pregnant and kept her baby. When you tell someone that story, 
how do you argue that? You know, they'll, they'll say abortions need in cases of rape, but then they hear of someone who was that young and that brutalized and still chose life and is grateful she chose life. It's hard to, to object to that. And so it's not that the story replaces an argument, but rather that the story becomes the vehicle through which the argument is communicated. And so I started applying that then at the other end of life to bring together just the position with the packaging of storytelling that made it more enticing and interesting. Well, can you give us an example from the book of a, of a story that you used that best conveys the message or the truth that you wanted to convey about mm. assisted suicide? Well, there are a ton of stories in my book. There, but the there first are one. a ton. Yes, there are a ton. <laughs> yes, you've kindly read it and, and endorsed it. But um, the one that just comes to mind as we're speaking now is one of my favorite people, now deceased, and authors is Dr. Viktor Frankl, who I cite in mm -hmm. my book. And yeah. he wrote uh, Man's Search for Meaning about his experiences in the concentration camps. He was Jewish. He was arrested during the Holocaust. He survived, but he was also a psychiatrist. So what really makes his story fascinating is not only his personal experience of suffering, but his educational background of psychology and what insights that further gave him about his experience and about the human condition. And one of the things Dr. Frankel talks about is how despair is suffering without meaning. And he, he puts a little mathematical equation to it. D equals S minus M. So despair is suffering without meaning. And his whole point is we all get S. We all will suffer. It's part of the human experience. But we don't have to despair in light of suffering and the determining factor as to whether we despair or not in light of that S is the M. Can we find meaning in our situation directly attached to our situation? And to the extent that we find meaning and that goes up, then despair goes down. But if we find no meaning in our suffering, then despair will go up and that can lead to suicide. So that's the principle, that's the point. But one of the stories I tell is one actually from him where he, tells of a, a teenager in Texas who was in a car accident, became quadriplegic. So now she can't, you know, move her limbs. Right. And, and Frankel, Dr. Frankel said, let me tell you how she spends her days. He said, she watches the news. She listens to the news, reads the news. And whenever she comes across a story of someone going through hardship, suffering, whether it's a natural disaster or, you know, some crisis that has occurred that made their experience newsworthy. He said, she calls for an assistant to bring her a little stick that she then uses, placed in her mouth, to pound out keys on a keyboard in order to write notes of encouragement to people that she just read about in the news. And Dr. Frankel said, that young woman lives a life of profound meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. And here's the point. It's not that her life is void of suffering. Right. Suffering is a very big part of her experience. She went from being able to do everything independently to being totally reliant on others. But her own suffering has given her insight into others' suffering. It's enabled her to empathize and connect with them and inspire them in a way I couldn't, having not suffered to the degree that she has. And so because she found meaning directly connected to her experience of suffering, then she lives a full and happy life 
rather than despairing. So I would say you could just say to someone, despair is suffering without meaning, (laughs) or you could say that and then build a story around it. And that's one of many um, to really hit that point home. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm I'm wondering, how did you, that's a powerful story. Um, The one of the the paraplegic or the quadriplegic Mm -hmm. uh, girl. I'm wondering, how did you choose the stories you did? In other words, was there was there a criteria, or how did you how did well? First of all, how did you find these stories? And 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 I'm sure there's there's a number of them that didn't make the cut. But how did, how did you decide which stories to to include in the book and which ones not to? Yeah, that is a great question. So I would say it goes all the way back, probably to when I was 18 and I met Scott Klusendorf. And one of the things he advised me when he was teaching me how to not only be a pro-life apologist, but specifically teach and present to others, is he said, you've got to be a good storyteller and you need a good repertoire of material that you can draw on that illustrates your point. So for example, with the pre-born, if you're talking about the need to speak up for the vulnerable, pay attention when you read the news. And if it's Holocaust Awareness Week, you might find a story in the news of someone who hid Jews in their home and decades later what they had done is coming out. And when you read that story, you'll realize this isn't about abortion, but what is tied to abortion is that idea of someone who raised their voice for the vulnerable or someone who protected the vulnerable. They did something to respect the life of someone who was in danger. And so he talked about how you could then cut a story like that out. You could use it in your talk, captivate your audience, and then talk about how that principle from that example from decades ago applies today in our own backyard, in our own environment. And how can we be like that person for the vulnerable in our midst, such as the preborn child? So for over two decades, I've been keeping stories and paying attention, you know, when I read the news or like, I would go to movies and I would take a notebook and pen with me into the movie theater. And I would take notes when I'm just watching a Hollywood movie, because if it had some deeper meaning, even if it was Spider-Man, you know, you've got deeper meaning there. It's about good versus evil. And so I have just been programmed literally for two decades to pay attention to stories and what the deeper meaning is and how it has relevance in other areas. And so, um, As I would come across stories and start to share them verbally in talks, if I seemed to get a positive reaction from the audience, then I would share that more frequently. And then that those were often the stories that then became what I included in the book. Alternatively, if besides impacting an audience is if I personally was impacted and there's a story I tell in here um, about a, a boy named Maddie Stepanek, actually, whose cause for canonization is open. Raymond Arroyo from EWTN is part of the team of people opening his cause for canonization. Maddie Stepanek was a young boy from Maryland um, who was born with a very severe form of muscular dystrophy that had killed his three previous siblings, some of them as infants, one of them at the age of four. Um, And they didn't realize till Maddie was born that his mother was the genetic carrier of this illness and that she would develop an adult onset version of it. And Maddie was an incredible child who had such resilience and love of God. He taught catechism in his parish. 
Um, and when I learned about this boy, I was astounded because he wrote poetry starting at the age of three. He had lots of supernatural experiences where um, like he sensed God speaking to him, telling him certain things, but he suffered greatly. And I remember the more I learned about him, um, he ended up dying around the age of 13, but his story became known through the world. Um, I go in detail in my book about it, but long story short, he was connected to Oprah Winfrey and she had him on his show, on her show, where he shared his poetry and his insights on life and just an incredible little boy. And I was personally so impacted that I thought I need to let the world know about Maddie Stepanek. Like <laughs> he's just an, ex he was an extraordinary human being. And so whether it impacted an audience or, or deeply impacted me, that usually was the criteria for being included in my book. This concludes part one of my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors. In part two, we discuss in detail the 10 principles at the heart of her new book on assisted suicide, and then look to the future of the pro-life movement, both in the United States and in Canada. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you have suggestions for future topics, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening. And may God's peace be with you.